This is InsureTech Radio, episode number 11. This is a fun episode. Mick Cooney is the CTO of Describe Data, and Mick is also a mine of information. In this episode, we decided to do something a little different. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, data is the new oil. It's been thrown around a lot over the last number of years, and I have to admit it, I've never actually known what it meant. Well, Mick knows what it means, so I decided to ask him and record our conversation. As the conversation unfolded, I learned much, much more than I expected. So keep listening to find out what we talked about. (laughs) So this is an episode of InsureTech Radio, where... Mick, you're going to help me understand cliches, a, a cliche that gets thrown around a lot, which is uh, data is the new oil. So I've heard this phrase. It's been like in headlines. It's been in um, loads of different magazines, normally like in-flight magazines. Or yep. <laughs> so what what does it mean? Where does it come from? Where does it yeah, come from? So, so I suppose before we can explain the cliche, we should probably explain the origin. So I did a bit of research in this when we first discussed the idea because my understanding of it was the origin of the phrase was from a guy called Clive Humby. And who's he? So he is a guy, so himself and his wife, whose name is something, I think it's Alison Dunn. Uh, so they formed a company called Dunn Humby, who were a data science consultancy in the mid 2000s, but they were involved with Tesco and their customer club card. Right. And that was where that whole like loyalty cards and stuff in the retail sector was one of the first big industrial use cases of what we would call data science today. I mean, in a lot of cases, data science is just statistics, but um, they kind of took a lot of the club card transactions and then them and a bunch of other retailers in North America. And it was the whole proverbial thing of... This might be a good way to explain what's what's different about data science then. Because that's an example everyone can relate to that a lot of people will have club card memberships. And yeah. How, how do they... Go so about? what happened was, so the, I mean, data science is only really... Be, I mean... There's an argument that data science isn't really anything new, um, but in many ways, it's it's it came about as a result of this convergence of multiple technologies, um, the rise of computational power, um, cheaper data storage because data sets got bigger and bigger, um, and kind of the unsung hero because people don't really talk about it much was massive advances in algorithmic efficiency in computer science so we can actually do a lot of things now that even with the rising computation we would just wouldn't have been able to do 20 years ago do more stuff faster yeah and not just because of the computing power but also because we've learned how to use computers better yeah yeah. so it's kind of like you're you're, we were like basically the world has won on multiple dimensions yes we had the tools and we also learned how to use them exactly Yeah. yeah and um so it kind of brought this convergence about the the guy who's kind of coined the the term who's famous is a guy called Drew Conway although it kind of came about earlier there's like the famous data science Venn diagram which is this combination of computer programming maths and stats and domain knowledge and kind of the data science idea was that guy is in the middle and kind of understands all three um so what, does, what does domain knowledge mean so understanding the particular 
a, what a you're doing. Yeah, yeah that oh, means, right. so one of the biggest problems I find with data science now is you get people who don't really understand what they're doing, but they can very easily fit models. Yeah, yeah. So it's very easy to create crappy models that don't really understand. It's a big problem in insurance, actually, because insurance is quite a complex business. So, so I, in that scenario, it would be someone who... Um, uh, does knows the maths, knows the uh, programming side, but also knows insurance. In in uh, an insurance data scientist, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they would understand, for example, that you can't just take a book of casualty business, run your predictive models on it, and yeah. output a number if you don't understand that there's a ten year tail on this casualty business. And great example. You yeah. know, if we've yeah. got only two years, so there is a very funny story I've heard of a friend of mine who was in a meeting and they got in these. Big Wiz can, I don't think it was consultancy. I think they'd spent quite a bit of money on actually building out a function, but they, these people were kind of, we don't want to know anything about insurance because we don't want to be corrupted by existing knowledge. We want to kind of bring in new approaches and come at it our own way. So they basically said our big strategic review was going to be that we're going to start writing all this business because it's massively profitable. Yeah. And what basically the guy at the back of the room went, well, you're two years into a business that typically has a six year tail. So, of course, that's going to look really good. And I think there there was blank faces all around. And then, the, what do you mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so, like, when we come back to the Tesco bit, so you're that you're talking about um, people are good at numbers, good at programming, and then you're, the, use, the usage is the Tesco club card system or the retail sector. Or, or the, yeah, they understand retail. So yeah, they yeah. understand what these numbers mean. They understand that. Because you're also going to have, like, no data is really clean. You're going to have yeah. to take all this data, clean it, make it usable. And this ties into the actual, this is a good example for why I think uh, Clive Humby actually said what he did. So cool. What did he say? Yeah, it's probably safer to exp- explain the quote. So sorry, I should, before I do it, so what Don Humby, they had that, club card i think they ended up getting bought by tesco um but they did a lot of the analysis and modeling for tesco to essentially hand out the vouchers so that's why the vouchers you get are typically related to the kinds of things you'd be interested in because they've looked at your spending patterns and they go oh you probably need detergent so we'll give you a quid off your detergent that kind of thing so the quote is data is the new oil it's valuable but if unrefined, it cannot really be used. It has to be changed into gas, plastic, chemicals, etc., to create a valuable entity that drives profitable activity. So must data be broken down, analysed for it to have value. So that's interesting because yeah. whenever you see it used now, it's more like data is the new oil because everyone's getting rich off data. Exactly. Someone yeah. like Jed Clamper has shot into the ground and black oil has started, you know, black yeah. gold has started bubbling up yeah. and now we're wealthy. Yeah. And in reality, it's much, much... I mean, interestingly enough, I've, I've looked into the history of the oil industry, which is fascinating. There's a really good documentary series called The Prize, which talks about, like, from it first being found in Pennsylvania. Originally, like, petroleum was a nuisance. It was kind of uh, poisoning the earth, making it, like, uh, unfertile yeah. and would just cause trouble in general. And it was only later on that they realized, oh, actually, wait, this is an incredible source of energy. Could the same be say, said of data? Yeah, I think so. I mean, th- th- I mean, yeah, that's a nice segue. But so what often happens is because we don't have, so there's a really, really good quote from, I think it was Jeff Bezos way back because he, he's, he, I mean, you can love him or hate him, but he's had some quite interesting perspectives on the world. And he made a comment about how, the advances of technology is kind of like electrification. So if you look at like the history of the electricity, like the big advances didn't really come until 20, 30 years after 
electrification started because there wasn't really standards around how things go. Things only really become useful when, you know, systems can integrate very easily with one another. So you get standard voltages, standard power. It's quite similar in data in that, like, there is no real, almost every company I've ever dealt with, and I've done a bit of consulting work, so I've seen both in capital markets and also finance and, and but also a couple of marketing firms and a few others, and they all kind of have their own custom ways of doing things. Yeah. So a lot of these systems, like there's a big, big integration piece required for a lot of data-related products. So that's why typically when you get with tech companies, there's this huge like implementation piece for any piece of software because every company is different. Mm. So because of that, it's you can't really you can't really just like take a dump from a database, get your big SQL tables, and then throw a model at it and start printing money. Well, one of the jokes we often say is people want to buy the data science button so that they can push it, <laughs> yeah. and it's literally a button they push and money falls out underneath. It's uh, like in a casino, you pull the handle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and all I have to do is I put like, you know, 200 grand and I hire three or four data scientists, yeah. and then I pull the lever and then a million falls out the bottom. You could say, and I suppose given that challenge, you could probably see the reluctance of some businesses to spend that 200 grand. So if you don't do it right, it's a great way to lose money. You yeah. know, it, it really is. I mean, it, 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 we, and we have seen that and we've actually started to hear now of uh, innovation uh, projects in within the insurance industry have started to get walked back or abandoned completely because it just hasn't gone anywhere. Because it's, you know, I mean, if you don't, and, it, and it's quite difficult because there is an awful lot of hype out there. So it's very difficult to tell. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this for quite a while now, and I remember a recruiter asking us about two individuals who they couldn't really distinguish. And one individual was a complete chancer who was a, like, didn't know anything. And the other one was a rock star. And they had no way of distinguishing between the two. They actually, and they'd met them both. Well, and it wasn't just looking at the CV. It's actually they'd met both individuals, but they couldn't tell the difference between the two. So if you were that recruiter, what questions would you ask to tell the difference? I don't know. To be honest, it's, it's tough. You kind of have to, It's a bit like the chicken and egg. You kind of have to know a bit about the field to be able to spot the spoofers. Yeah. Because w- what will happen is you'll just kind of start contradicting. You can, it's, it's, it's a bit, a bit like underwriting. It's, you know it when you see it, yeah. but it's very, very hard to actually say why you're making the decision you're making. Yeah. And that goes back to the point we were making before about not trying to replace underwriters where, um, with underwriters, you, you know, there's an awful lot of complex decisions going on there. And I think this whole thing of data science coming in to replace underwriters, I think is a very flawed, idea. I think technology probably can do underwriting at some unspecified point in the future as we understand more about intelligence in general, but I think we're a long, long way off it. I mean, pe- people often underestimate how powerful the human brain is. So there's a, there's a great one I've heard for um, the, the very kind of, so there's been this big, huge thing of deep learning now where you have these deep neural networks that can do pretty incredible stuff. Um, and the very famous one was the cat, pic- cat videos that Google brought out. Now, I think the the stat I heard was that like it took the first one was trained on something like three million images and three million counter images and they could identify a cat with like ninety five percent accuracy, but a three year old child can look at one photo of a cat and then identify cats from then on. <laughs> yeah, that's quite. Powerful. You know, and that's yeah. the difference between human kind of cognition and and you know what what AI is potential. I mean, long term, probably we'll figure all this stuff out, but. Yeah. We kind of underestimate just how powerful a 
computational engine the brain is. Yeah. And how much we don't know about it as well. Yeah, I mean, it works both ways too. I mean, this is also, as I like to say, this is also why we sometimes see Jesus in cheese sandwiches, you know, toasted cheese sandwiches, because, you know, and our faces in the sky. We're very good at pattern recognition sometimes to our, you know, false positives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's also a big problem because your machine learning thing will actually identify lots of false positives that we know aren't there. And humans will see them, but they'll also do a bit of digging and go, Oh wait, no, that's not. That's just this that happens. That's, you know, that's actually essentially what, what frontline underwriting is. You know, you're given a lot of data, and then you kind of do a little bit of digging, and you figure out, okay, this risk is actually shit, or okay, this is not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, um, if we dig a bit more into the quote, so like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so refine. Let's talk about refining data. Yeah. So that, that that was the next step. So what exactly does that mean? So there's. There's um, a kind of a refrain in kind of the data science community that data science work is 80% data cleaning and data exploration, 5% modeling, and 15% communication and presentation. And if anything, that's that, that's about right. Although maybe if, if it errs, it errs on the side of more data cleaning and exploration. You'd, and maybe a little bit less modeling than 5%. Because it's gotten to the point now where fitting your models and building your models is actually a couple of lines of code. It's very, it's actually a junior task now, I think. Um, well, there is a mistake being made that I, I, I hear a lot where we want the senior people in to do the modeling and the construction. Whereas in reality, it's th- that front 80% where all the expertise is. So you'll get data in and like it'll be often, as I said, it will be dumps from a SQL table. Or some What's kind of SQL table. So sorry, from a database system. So okay. SQL database. So you'll have, you know, it'll be stored in tables and you'll just get dumps from the system. Yeah. We find actually typically insurance isn't as a bad a state here because, because of regulatory requirements for reporting. Uh, quite often insurance companies will have to kind of have their actuarial reports or whatever for what policies they're writing. So that typically that kind of regulatory requirement means that actuarial extracts tend to be in reasonably good shape. So that's actually not a bad place to start if you're doing data science. You can start yeah. from that. Because am I right in saying you're not just using like, quantitative data, uh, like you know, actuarial data? No, no. You sense. well, it depends. It depends yeah. on. The, but yes, sometimes you will you will have that. But you might want to start enhancing it from like publicly available sources or alternative systems within your company. Like one of the companies I've seen is you, they'll actually have completely separate systems for the rating and for the quote versus what actually was put on book. And the policy will have a lot less data about the risk than the quoting system will. So can you go back to the quoting system? Can we link the two somehow? In some cases you can, in some cases you can't. Yeah, I suppose, so to give a real-world example of like how I would see that, it uh, would be like, so for a lot of risks, I get a proposal form, which is, you know, an application form, maybe 10, 15 pages long. You could have maybe you could have 20, 30 questions on it sometimes. Like, I, Depending on the risk, I don't read the answers to every single question because depending on the risk, you know, some um, answers are more pertinent than others. But all that data has still been collected, but not all of it is going into the underwriting system necessarily. Yeah. Um, but all of that data is really, really valuable, I think, and has a use. Especially after the fact, because you don't necessarily... I mean, I mean, one of the key things is sometimes... There are things that are very important that you don't realize. I mean, there, I mean, one of the reasons why this stuff got popular is because human intuition does fail and some things are much more 
important than you realise. And it's only when you do the data analysis that you can figure that out. And one thing I think it could be a huge opportunity uh, for for insurers from a sales point of view is looking at all the risks that you don't write. So you get a prop in, a proposal form in, and you say, no, that's not one for us. But say you you decline like 50% of the risks you see, like... You don't really know a lot about that 50%. You could be missing a huge uh, new type of product, new scheme. Yeah. It it was interesting. I I heard it, and it was not quite insurance, but it was uh, lending finance. There was a a guy who did a project just as an internal kind of hackathon for his company. So it was exactly that. It was like they looked at the risk that they, they were declining. So what loans they didn't get. And he could somehow figure out, I'm trying to remember exactly how he did it, but basically he had some way of figuring out what was a good and what was a bad risk after the fact. And then he applied it to the book of business that they refused. And he basically figured out that they were actually being too risk averse, that there was a bunch of good risks in there and they could have make X amount more money if they had wrote those risks based on the book that they did write. Um and I think he actually, he, he was a guy who was working in uh, data, like just kind of the database backend IT. And he kind of wanted to get into more of the data science predictive modeling. And that was how he got a job move. Kind of that was kind of, he used that. I heard. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, but that's the kind of thing you could now, I guess, I guess your problem in insurance is that you won't have any claims history at all. But you might be able to figure out if you can get external sources of data, you could actually look at, okay, well, these are the things we do know. And here's the characteristics of the book we didn't write. Yeah. So maybe we can project some kind of loss ratio that we would have seen from this. Yeah. And maybe we do need to change your underwriting policies somehow, maybe let a few things. I mean, another big problem you do have in the industry is, and this is especially true even in personal lines where you have lots and lots of data and you can fit any amount of models, is that you're because the data you're using is the data you've written, it's quite possible that's a biased data set in that you had, you know, underwriting policies or marketing target like targets that you were going after certain segments of the base. And that might not be representative of the world as a whole. So I think there is definitely a benefit to taking, if you can get access to data that is kind of more global as opposed to just focusing entirely on what your internal data sets look like. Yeah, again, because I suppose it's, uh, that can inform how you decide to grow, you know, over yeah. time. Or are, are we missing a trick here? Is there a segment of the market we yeah. should be going after that we're not because it was perceived to be too risky? Yeah. I mean, there's a great adage in insurance, which I fully agree, and this was something I got from trading as well, is that there's no such thing as a bad risk. There's only a bad price. Yeah. Now, to be fair, that might mean that that price, it, it's essentially a bad risk because no one's ever going to pay you the premium for you know, the, the terror, I mean, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly split, yeah. and the ugly price is something no one's ever going to pay. That's exactly it. But I, I'm always kind of surprised at how often, uh, um, I'm always surprised at how often those kind of generally perceived poorer risks that should be probably paying a higher premium, the market premium is very, very low. I always find that interesting. Yeah, I've never understood that either. I mean, I guess it's because there's different, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to incentives. I think a lot of companies yeah. incentivize on top line and not bottom line. Yeah. And also, maybe some companies plan to um, write these risks at this price um, because it fits in with their overall uh, customer proposition. So they take a hit on one line of business so they can support another. Well, one of the things we do talk about is that we have this whole idea of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And sometimes, and I saw this in trading as well, it's quite a human thing in that sometimes you will write a risk that isn't great 
because you know I'm either not going to make money off it or I'm not going to lose too much. But I know it's basically I'm doing a favor for someone who gives me a lot of business. And you can say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just the reality of the world. Or it's like part of someone who wants to write all this risk. And, you know, they don't have to deal with four or five different cover holders. And like their PL is bad because they're, you know, a retail business and they just get hammered with, you know, fraudulent or shyster claims or whatever but every other aspect of their business is actually very profitable but if you're a pl underwriter that's going to look bad for you because you know you you don't get you don't get judged on all those other lines of business you're only getting judged on the pl part of it but having said that if you know within the business that you're not going to be judged on that particular deal but you have to write it well then that's fair enough so you write the deal because i know i know i'm not going to get it's not going to destroy my business for the year but i am going to take a hit on it I suppose that's another kind of part of the essence of underwriting is understanding your book and uh, yeah. where where you're vulnerable, where you can accept risk, where you can't. Yeah, I mean, coming from finance, we had this thing where you know you have negative correlations, so you have you know your one bank stock might be negatively correlated with another bank stock because they're kind of in completely opposite approaches that doesn't really happen in insurance pretty much correlations are always positive so you can't really offset your risk by writing it like something that is a, is negatively correlated apart from in a couple of areas that may be like weather related or something where can you give, uh, give me an example of that i don't entirely get what you mean so uh, for which insurance or for finance Stick with insurance. Okay. So say, for example, you're crop insurance and you have something that is very, your insurance, you're you're insuring against, say, excess rainfall versus drought. So one, one, one bit, oh, actually a better one would be life insurance would be longevity versus mortality. So if you're a life insurance company, you might have. Longevity, that's. How long, how, how long you live yeah. versus mortality, which is yeah. how short you live. Okay. So you, insurance companies will often be exposed to both risks. Yeah. So they might have mortality risk in the sense that if they're writing a lot of life cover, mm. if people die early, then they lose money because they were expecting to get, you know, you were expecting you to live till you're 65 and you're dying at 58 mm. and people are just generally dying earlier. So as the premiums they're paying is not covering their life cover their writing. Yeah. So they lose money on that. Yeah. A much more common one is actually these days is longevity risk because yeah. we're living longer than we expected. So people are writing annuity business where, you know, you retire at the age of 65 and you're expected to die at 75 yeah. and you're getting paid a certain amount every year, but you're not dying until you're 95. Yeah. So you end up living 20 years longer. Yeah. So that those are kind of offsetting risks. Yeah. But in general, you don't get directly offsetting risks in insurance. What you'll have is, what you might have is just a lack of correlation as opposed to negative correlation. Yeah. So you might have, for example, that I don't have, uh, the, probably the, the easiest way to think about it would be I have a lot of property business in, you know, the southwest of the US and I don't really want to write any more business in there, even if it is very profitable business because I've just got too much exposure there. Yeah. But I'm happy to write for the Pacific Northwest or Europe. Yeah. And I'll, I'll write lots of European business if it's profitable because I actually don't have a lot of exposure to Europe, but yeah. I just have too much in, say, Texas. So I don't, I don't care how profitable it's supposed to be. I can't really write anymore because there's just too much aggregation of risk there. That makes sense. So you could use the same maybe in, or the same idea in casualty insurance where you're like, I want to write lots of liability business. Um, or I'm maxed out on, constru- on the construction sector. So now I want to focus on exactly. Sector. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Um, so 
So when you actually have to refine data, what is the practice of doing that, the cleaning up and tidying up? What does that actually involve? It, I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, it's very iterative. So what I tend to do is I have a couple of tools I've kind of built and some of them are, most of them are like publicly available on my GitHub or whatever, which is a online repository of code. Um, and what I tend to do is I'll just take stuff at the top and this is a talk I kind of give from time to time on systematic data exploration. And there's no real, it's an art much more than the science, uh, despite the warm data science. And it, it really is. And this is where domain knowledge becomes really important. So you kind of take your data and what I generally do is I'll go through, if you think of it as tabular data, so you've got like an Excel spreadsheet and you've got your rows and your columns. And typically your rows are like your individual, if you think of it in terms of policies, your policies will be, each row will be a separate policy. And then your column will all be the different fields within that policy. So for example, name, address, date of birth. Yeah. Line of business, turnover, whatever, all the different kind of characteristics that you have. And, And this is not just insurance, this would be pretty much any kind of data analysis, really. And then what I will do is I will just take that data and I will plot every single column. I will look at every single one. If there's a couple of hundred, that's fine. You can write code that just loops over it and just produces it all. And then you just scroll down and start looking at it. And you'll generally have, for any given data set, you might have between 10 and 50 fields that you will know in advance are kind of the interesting ones. And you'll maybe will scroll down, but you'll pay attention to those in particular. And you just look at them. So it's research. It's kind of like, yeah, you, yeah. you, you kind of have to look at it and you, you kind of say to yourself, okay, well, this does, does, does this look right? So for example, if it is, uh, a casualty line of business for, uh, let's say, um, professional indemnity, um, it, is it right that I have a whole load of construction companies in there? Yeah. Does that make sense? Is my book, are 40% of my policies construction? No. Well, then maybe there's a problem with the data extract. So you, you kind of have to try and figure out as early as possible, is the data I'm looking at real or has there been a mistake in the SQL query that produced the extract? Like, is there a bug in the code somewhere? So the data I'm working on is actually illegitimate and not something I can rely on because if I don't find that out really early, I'm going to end up producing bogus results. So it's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, and this is kind of back to what you are saying before about companies can spend a lot of money yeah, but just not produce anything. Not produce anything and and and... Tragically, if they'd have done it properly, they would have produced something very valuable. Yeah. But because they weren't doing it properly, they didn't. Yeah. So you you want to try and find that out very, very quickly. And and this goes back to the point of the data is the new oil. Like it needs work to be refined and distilled down. You might have data in multiple sources that most most kind of predictive algorithms have like data in a tabular format. So you have all your data, like I said, in that, like a, a single Excel spreadsheet. But what happens if it's scattered across 15 different places and I need to pull them all together? There's a whole bunch of work involved in putting that together. And that whole process of putting that together involves choices and compromises. And, and to a certain extent, and this is where the domain knowledge comes in. How do we join this to that? Does this make sense? Should this be blank? So even things like a very simple thing I will look at is how many blank, like what proportion of blanks are there in this field and should there be any? And if there are any, does it make sense that there's only 5%? Are there, are they missing at random or is there some kind of thing where a particular thing isn't getting extracted? All that sort of stuff. And if it is blank, how do we fill it in? Can we go back to actually get it or does just that data not exist? Another thing I very heard was there was a company once that was doing this analysis and they found that something like 50% of their, their policies were accountants. And they went, that doesn't make any sense. And they found out that essentially the, the, the 
clerk who was doing the data filling. Accountant was the first profession in the drop down. And there was absolutely no controls on data, data quality. Yeah. So they just were just, eh, accountant, there you go. And, you know, and you can't really solve that problem. But at the no, same time, going back and, yeah, yeah. and you can, but you need to know that. So you can kind of go, okay, well, if it's accountant, it's probably missing or maybe it is real. Or maybe we just ignore it completely. Yeah. And this is where the domain knowledge comes in. And you kind of have to... Yeah. I, 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 a very senior actuary told me a great quote from two or three years ago about doing all this work. And that the, he had three steps. It was uh, know the product, know the data, and then talk to the claims team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. they're the ones who are at the coalface. Yeah, and man. they know exactly how things are done. Yeah, they have the, the probably the best sub, uh, quality of data about... Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and because they'll also have to deal with the policy stuff because you know there is this is this claim valid based yeah. off the policy covers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I was just thinking there, like if if this is how your mind works, and if this is like stuff that you really enjoy, I imagine you could probably get lost for hours going through that kind of thing. Oh, easily. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, I, I've kind of, it's weird as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experienced and I thought this was just me, but it seems to be quite a few other people who I know who will be kind of quite senior as well. It's almost like building a model now is an admission of defeat in that I actually, you know, it's, it's weird in that I actually much prefer to spend my time exploring the data and just plotting it and creating graphs and understanding it and asking questions and just going back and saying, well, does this make sense? Does that make sense? And it's almost like when I run out of ideas, then I'll build a model afterwards to start predicting something. Cause and you, you might not necessarily know what model you're going to build, but it's that whole process of like refining the data and turning it into something useful that almost everything after that is a very direct consequence. You don't really have to think anymore. It's like all these questions have already been kind of asked as part of that whole exploration and cleaning process. And now I'm just going to answer them. And that's almost like the, that's almost like the anticlimax. It's like everything else was the important part. Yeah. yeah. And now you're just kind of tidying it up and putting a shine on it. And and, and, and producing predictions and doing all that kind of stuff. But almost like all I've found, and that's why I, I would never tell anyone who's like, if you've got access to senior people, you put them on the data cleaning and the data exploration part, because that's where all the value is. The problem is a lot of, people don't see it that way. So they see that as the low value. Whereas in reality, it's all the high value because after that, you end up with a data set that's now amenable to all sorts of interesting data analysis that almost anyone can do because there's so many libraries out there that will pretty much do that for you out of the box. But producing that is where the real value is. And um, so like you're working in a startup now. How many is on your team? Just the three of us. Three of us, yeah. Three of you. Um, yeah. So like, I wonder what what would it be like. So say you get like a hundreds of millions in venture capital funding, and you have to employ a team. Like, would you still like to spend that amount of time doing the data analysis? Me personally, yeah. absolutely. Or, I probably yeah. wouldn't be able to though. Yeah, because you have to employ yeah. people to do it for you. Hiring is very hard. Yeah. Um, how would you? Yeah, how would you actually think about like the type of person who essentially has to replace you? <laughs> yeah, so. Um, so we have a kind of a thing. We've never had to do it, um, but we can't. Well, first of all, it, the biggest thing, because we run, we're at a lot of meetups and, and you know, there's the InsureTech meetup here and there's Dublin Data Science and then there's the Machine Learning Dublin. There's a whole lot of meetups in Dublin now that are really good. We could probably at least try to hire out of our network initially. Yeah. Um, that would probably run out reasonably quickly. Um, although, mind you, if you had hundreds of millions, you can actually pay them properly, so that would be good. <laughs> but in reality, you have you know budget constraints. Um, after that, 
it's it's very difficult. I think the worst way you can evaluate people is through an interview. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah oh yeah, I think for what you've just described, because yeah, terrible. Like, how can you assess what, how good they are at that? You what haven't. Kind of, in fact, you, it's, yeah. it's it it will anti-select for people. That like most of the people I know who are absolute geniuses, uh, are are just excellent. Who I would recommend to almost anyone will do terribly in an interview. They're just like it's just not the good place to hire technical people out of. I you, heard. Um, your man was says he runs WordPress. Matt Mullenweg. Uh, yeah, he's talking about how he hires people, and usually the first couple of interviews for technical people are over uh, Slack or yep. chat, and then he gives them a little project to do. That's um, exactly the way we would do it. And yeah, they, they essentially and he'll they'll pay them for it. You know, as a contractor. Oh, yeah, a week or two. Yeah, and that's how they assess who they're yep. working on. That, that's I mean, you, it's the only way to do it. I, I honestly think the only way to hire technical people is to give them a technical project. Yeah. There's a very famous blog article. Um, by the guy who wrote Stack Overflow, if you're familiar with the website. So it's a programming kind of Q&A website. Um, a guy called Jeff Atwood, he had a blog called Coding Horror, and he he had a very famous article about 15 years ago about the FizzBuzz program. So are you familiar with the drinking game FizzBuzz? No. So FizzBuzz is... Maybe I just used to lose it a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you play FizzBuzz? <laughs> so FizzBuzz is just a very, very simple counting game where you, you get a bunch of people around the table and you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. Yeah. But every five or multiple of five gets replaced with Fizz. I and, have played this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and every seven <laughs> is Buzz. Yeah. And then I think, like, hilariously, the rule is if you get to 35, you have to say FizzBuzz. <laughs> Good luck getting to 35 yeah, yeah, yeah. because the idea is if you mess up the count, you have to take a drink. So you get yeah. more drunk, which makes it harder to concentrate. Oh, also, a buzz reverses the order. <laughs> yeah, so everyone just screws up. It's yeah. just, it can be very, very funny. I remember getting actually getting quite, uh, um, getting up into, into the 20s. And I think uh, <laughs> that's, I've never seen it go that high. Yeah, I think the highest but I, was, No, I think at 21, you know, uh, I think that's when I, we, we learned so <laughs> down. <laughs> So the, the idea of the FizzBuzz program is to just write a piece of code that will count from 1 to 100 and do the FizzBuzz thing. Yeah. So it will replace Fizz, a 5 with a Fizz, a Buzz with a 7, oh, right. and then FizzBuzz for 35 and 70 and so on. And you can test that very easily. It's, yeah, it's a trivial line. Of, it's yeah. actually trivial, but the point he was making is that a lot of your candidates, even people with computer science degrees, will fail that simple test. So it's a really simple filter to get rid of the completely woefully unsuitable people yeah. who can't even pass the because he originally said you probably think there's a trick to this like this is a trick question somehow yeah. he says this is not a trick question this is a genuine question that you get people you'll be shocked at the proportion of people that will fail that yeah. so you you kind of need some really simple filters I mean one of the ones I've heard is that the first thing you do is you can like you said Slack or maybe a ten minute phone conversation just to completely eliminate the Psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, and well, complete spoofers. Know. Yeah, you won't know if they're a psychopath <laughs> until, like, you know, they kill your cat and stuff. Um, so the, you you do that, and then you give them a project, and then you probably bring them in, and you make sure that you do the soft stuff, like the personal team fit. And, you know, especially people in my line of business, social skills are often not the highest. I imagine so, the, when, when it's such a small team, though, that that kind of fit with the other people is really important. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can definitely go too far on that, though, because a certain amount of, of tension is good. Yep. Uh, there's a great book by Tim Harford on messiness, which talks about all of that. Um, I believe in that. Yeah, yeah you, you need that certain amount of fly in the ointment just to keep, you know, if everyone gets really cosy, group thinks it's in. and Yeah, it's, you know, it's unhealthy, I think, for people to agree with each other too much. Yeah, yeah. And, and you definitely need different 
perspectives and it's a big buzzword right now but I am a genuinely believer in it from an economic point of view regardless of the social is the diversity thing and just purely different opinions that was one of the things I really learned from going to meetups and stuff was just someone would come in who had a background in like one of the the best people I've ever worked with as a PhD in chemistry and he would just think of things that I never even thought of mm. and to him it would be trivial and he'd be understand why you were why do you think this is clever um but because it's just you know, it's, and it, in that field, it's probably a pretty standard technique, but no one has heard of it before in other areas and it completely solves a problem they have. Cause they're, they're, I mean, maths is kind of universal and data is universal. So, I mean, just because all that's changing is the application and the interpretation, but all that, all that stuff can still be put to use mm-hmm. and just changed in terms of how you use it or why you use it yeah, but all this stuff works you're explaining that Venn diagram exactly yeah and so and that's where the domain knowledge becomes really important but the maths and the stats is pretty important too you need to know that these things are out there mm-hmm. so that's why diversity is so important and you do need that kind of tension and that certain amount of of conflict so it's very easy to go but at the same time you no one wants to work with someone who's a complete arsehole so you know <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know there, there, it can very easily it's a bit like it's you know it's a bit like poison poison is a question of dose so it's all right to have a little bit <laughs> yeah, yeah. but and maybe not to you know and so you don't want complete but at the same time if someone's a bit you know lacking in social graces that's not necessarily a problem either that no. could actually be good for your team yeah. Yeah, we're all we all have our uh, idiosyncrasies we certainly do yeah well, look, on that note, I think I've grasped this concept uh, to, an, to an extent. But actually, I really love the exploration of what data science actually is and how it can be applied to any um, any field, not just insurance. So thanks a million for your time. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, not at all. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. As, as anyone who knows me, I'll talk about this stuff all day long. So, um, well, If people want to talk to you about this stuff, where can they find you online? Um my GitHub repo, I have pretty much all the code I ever write is up online and there's a bunch of stuff. There's actually one on car insurance pricing, which I used to learn how to price insurance from a book and I, can't, I had to rewrite all the code to make it legible to me. So that's all on there. So K-B-L-E-R-O-L, K-Y-B-E-N-L-E-R-O-L-L. Uh, that's a, it's an old D&D character. So it's my <laughs> internet handle and that's me at K-B-L-E-R-O-L and on Twitter as well. And then Cooney at gmail.com for anyone who wants to talk to me. Perfect. I expect an email from Oprah any day now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, Connor. Bye.